Happy Friday, developers. Today is August 25th, 2023, and welcome back to our Roundup episode, where you can catch up on episodes you missed and get a quick rundown of the past two weeks from Podrocket. So let's get started. First up, we have Logan Kilpatrick, developer advocate at OpenAI, who joined us to talk about GPT-4, OpenAI, Langchain, and more. In this clip, Logan explains parameters in GPT-4 and talks about the new code interpreter feature. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about GPT-4. I'm sure we've all seen the diagrams of GPT-3.5 has this many parameters and then GPT-4 is this big circle next to it with like billions more. But it's just these two circles, you know, they look like the sun and the earth effectively. I'm curious if you could speak to that, particularly clarifying parameters and their role. What do those even mean? What is even a parameter? And what makes GPT-4 so much bigger than GPT-3.5? A couple of caveats. One, that image diagram that you're referring to, while exciting to look at, is not proportional to like the correct orders of magnitude. So I think Sam, our CEO, mentioned before that it's just not right. It's not representative of the actual parameter count. In general, I do think that people over-index on the parameter count as like a simple mental model heuristic for the capabilities of models. My intuition is that maybe that you can do this indexing and using that heuristic today, but long-term, it's not actually fundamentally the right way of looking at it. Like just because if some new model comes out that has a hundred trillion parameters, like it doesn't actually mean that it's going to be bigger is not always better. Like it actually depends a lot on the data and the training process and the architecture and stuff like that. But generally parameters are just the number of neurons in the network. I don't know if there's a good way to simplify this, but if people have seen visualizations of like uh, how a model looks and there's like different layers and there's these different parameters and the different layers, which essentially the idea is if the parameters activate in a certain sequence that represents like essentially like the thinking process or like the ability to like answer a question essentially. And so generally the more of these neurons you have, the more broader the problem set is of things that you could potentially answer. That's my hopefully high level overview of of why the parameters is people are talking about this. And generally, again, the idea is you have a bunch of parameters and therefore you can potentially answer more questions in a deeper way. It's a broader pool to be inspired from, so to speak. There's also talk now of new code interpreter feature in ChatGPT that people are calling GPT 4.5 in disguise. I'm curious if you could speak to that at all and either clarify, is it in fact GPT 4.5 or are people just making stuff up like they did with the parameter size discrepancy? People like to speculate, which is always exciting for people to speculate. Yeah, I think when GPT 4.5 is available, we'll release it to people. And after we can make sure it's being released in such in a safe way. I do think that the excitement about code interpreters specifically highlights how useful these tools are specifically to like the developer persona the fact that the output for engineers and people in the software industry is text in a lot of cases um just like bodes so well with the capabilities of these models um if you think about other roles where it's like much more not that engineers don't also have to do these things but like your output is tied to things that are just a little bit less text-based it's just like much more difficult like if you have to interact with people having a model that can like generate text doesn't help you a ton but i think for engineers because the core deliverable is oftentimes code that you type with your fingers it's just so easy to get excited about this possibility and the fact that the model can run the environment of code interpreter can actually run the code and not just generate it and has that like iterative loop 
the real magic part is like if the code doesn't work in code interpreter, it actually it, it tries to regenerate the code and based on the error messages, do it. Yeah, re- regenerate it successfully, which is so exciting. Next, Matthias Albuquerque returns to do a deep dive on JavaScript rendering patterns. Here he explains why he wanted to demystify rendering concepts and show how rendering has evolved. I found myself a bit in that momentum we had in 2016, 17, where we were discussing the whole JavaScript fatigue and etc. But back at the time, we were talking about fatigue when we had Angular, Vue, and React. That's, that's the choice we had to make. And nowadays, we have a lot more of options and choices, and not only of frameworks or meta frameworks, but also of rendering patterns and etc. When I started ideating this session, I wanted to shed some light on some of these concepts. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that, that, that's really profound now that you mentioned also. I agree. The decisions we have to make these days factor in a lot more variables. We still have to choose, right, between Angular, Quick, Solid, etc., um, React maybe. But the choices aren't so much just about the libraries, but they're about how the libraries work because some really champion islands and others really champion reusability. In fact, the only other one that champions reusability is Quick. You start the talk asking, like, how and where do I want to render content? Because now we can also, based on the, even just the title of your talk, we render in multiple places and rendering used to mean really one thing back in the early days, right? But now it means multiple things that it also happens in different environments. And it also can be asynchronous or synchronous. Like rendering has become so much of a loaded term. So I guess the question I'm trying to ask you is if you could highlight the differences between rendering, for example, on servers, that is web servers or build servers, because even that's different, or clients or at the edge. Yeah, so that's one of the things I explore throughout different sections of the talk. For example, a lot of people, let's let's grab React Server Components, that is one of the things you also have been talking a lot about recently. I still notice a lot of confusion on the whole idea of React Server Components, and a lot of people think that server components are directly inherited to server-side rendering, SSR, and related things. And one of the things that focus on showing is that how a build server can mean like different stuff and same thing for rendering on the client and et cetera, and even on the edge. So a lot of us front-end engineers, we think that because people have been talking more in our realm about the edge recently, mostly after 2017, and then a couple of years later, Vercel and others also released support for running on the edge and things like that. So we tend to think that this is a recent thing, but actually the whole idea of being on the edge is not new. Uh, the first CDNs started back in the 90s and people have been using the edge on different industries for a lot of time now. So it had IoT devices or security or even medical monitoring things running on the edge. So. I feel like I deviated a lot, but one of the main points was that the answer to where you want to render things, it depends a lot on the use case. And choosing the most suitable thing is going to impact a lot, not only your UX and your product, but also your developer experience and how your team is going to move forward. So that's the initial discussion that I proposed. And also I raised these questions because I wanted to bring in this fatigue I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. So 
how did we get in a point where we have to answer, where we have so many questions to ask when the, the whole topic is just rendering? And finally, Vercel, DevRel, Lydia Halley returned to talk about how reacting teen improves app performance. In this clip, she talks about how developers can identify where performance is lagging in React apps. Yeah, then to close that loop, what, again, if you're a front-end developer, what are things to look out for? And then particularly in the React space, like how do you go about thinking about this? Where do you start investigating if you have some React app that you're trying to minimize your number of long tasks? The thing with React, with a traditional React render, which is also, by the way, still the case in React 18, we'll talk more about that later, is that a render is an all or nothing approach. When state changes, when props changes, React will go ahead and render the entire component tree as a single uninterruptible task on mm -hmm. the main thread. But as you can imagine, sometimes we have components that are pretty complex and this can take a while to complete. During that time, users aren't able to interact with your application as it's still waiting for that component update to finish or like the task to finish. And that can definitely cause a bad user experience if this takes a couple or even if this takes longer than like the long task amount of time or even mm -hmm. just a couple seconds, which happens pretty often, your application seems frozen. So for React developers, it's important to ensure that your application doesn't re-render too often. And if it does, then optimize your kind of components to like only render or re-render the components that actually need to be re-rendered. So mm -hmm. there's just a lot of thought in like application architecture that developers have to think about, even though it's not directly related to their application. It's not like directly related to your product, but it's still important for the user experience. And this is where some of the React 18 features help out to make sure that developers don't really have to think about that too much anymore. React handles that for you. Gotcha. Yeah, to make our examples a little bit more concrete here, what might be something one could do even like prior to React 18 to minimize the amounts of rendering that the component tree needs to do? So there are like third-party tools like Dbounds or Throttle that we often used in React applications, for example, with input fields. You know, we don't want to re-render our application on every keystroke, uh, which by default could definitely happen if you didn't optimize for that. So in that case, you always had to rely on third-party libraries or use React.memo, use, use callback to optimize your application for that. Still, again, all this takes like manual work like a developer actually has to think about application performance in that case but those were memo and callback work built in methods to think about performance <laughs> that way but otherwise it was really only third-party tools there was no like built-in solution to handle main thread work uh like react 18 does and that's it for today friday august 25th you can check out the full episodes linked in our show notes or on our feed and if you like what you hear follow pod rocket for more great web development content see you at the next roundup this episode was brought to you by log rocket try it for free at logrocket.com